Kubernetes has made distributed systems easier to deploy and manage. As Kubernetes has become reliable, engineers have started to look for higher-level abstractions that we can define on top of Kubernetes. An operator is a method of packaging, deploying, and managing a Kubernetes application. Operators are useful for spinning up distributed systems such as Kafka, Redis, or MongoDB. These data systems are complicated. They're stateful applications with lots of failure domains. The operator framework enables a developer to deploy one of these complicated applications with less fear of the system crashing or entering an erroneous state. Rob Suzumski is an engineer at Red Hat, and he joins the show to discuss Kubernetes and the operator pattern and his time at CoreOS, which was acquired by Red Hat. I'll be attending a few conferences in the near future. I'm attending Datadog Dash July 16th and 17th in New York City, and the Open Core Summit September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. Also, we are accepting sponsorship proposals if companies are interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily and reaching our audience of 200,000 plus developers. We actually don't have great numbers on how many listeners there are, but we know it's a lot. So if you're interested, you can email me at jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com and we can discuss sponsorship. Let's get on to today's show. Rob Sumsky, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, nice to be here. You were at CoreOS for four and a half years before the company joined Red Hat. When you joined CoreOS in 2013, long before the acquisition, what was the infrastructure landscape like? It was interesting because, uh, so we set out to kind of reinvent the way that Linux was run. And this was before containers. So VMs were a really big thing. People building pet VMs, there wasn't a lot of like large scale infrastructure to support, you know, running a thousand VMs. Folks like Facebook and others were doing this. So yeah, I mean, you had cloud APIs and things like that. And, you know, folks, even like Terraform, I don't even think was around then or was very new. So there wasn't a lot of this infrastructure. So we were kind of part of the wave building that. Containers were part of that. Rearchitecting Linux was part of that as well. What problems was CoreOS seeking to solve? It was running large-scale Linux infrastructure. And so our, our founders, I also came from Rackspace, where they were running technically a very large distributed system running web-scale monitoring. And they realized that managing all their Linux servers, I mean, this was a cloud company, keep in mind, the right tooling wasn't there on the Linux side of it. You know, we had some of these APIs to programmatically boot VMs and things like that. But we didn't have the capabilities to know what is the state of all my thousand servers, um, you know, that might be across seven different geos. Are they patched? What kernel versions am I running? How do I like manage this fleet? Uh, we had tools like Chef and Puppet, but those were more of like convergent style technologies. And so am I orphaning off snowflakes here and there that are now not long, no longer tracked in my system? That was like the kind of the landscape that you found yourself in. And so we were trying to solve that of how do you run Linux at very high scale? And we backed into like kind of containers and Kubernetes and distributed systems through that lens of, I've got a thousand of these things. How do I keep them upgraded? Okay, well that, you know, we got to re-architect Linux to do like over the air style upgrades is really the only way to do it at scale. What do I need? Well, I need like a way to move these applications from machine to machine so we can take them down and reboot them, you know, to update them. And okay, well, containers provide a great encapsulation of an app and its dependencies so I can move those around and now I need some sort of logic for where do I move them to, which one of these thousand machines. And so we backed into Kubernetes and other orchestrators like that. 
that's a good description of how the technology changes were evolving at the time. Can you go a little bit deeper on how the strategy within CoreOS changed? Like the business strategy. So the, what's interesting is the business strategy really didn't change throughout the entire company run, as well as the technology strategy at a very high level, which was to sell to companies that had this problem. But the beauty of it was the, the market was growing and growing and growing because almost every company had this problem. Everyone's running web services. Everyone in your industry is running web services, getting smarter with machine learning, moving things to the web. And so if you weren't doing it, you were about to get disrupted. And you see this in you know everything from transportation and things like Uber and Lyft to real estate to e-commerce to same-day delivery and things like that. All these things need APIs. They have machine learning behind them. They have all this stuff needs to run somewhere. And so we were catering to those types of organizations. But now that's you know every bank, every insurance company, every government agency, et cetera. Why did Kubernetes win the container orchestration wars? I think for two things. One, I mean, Google's stewardship in the beginning was really, really powerful. And so, you know, they had the technical chops to make people sit down and pay attention to it. But they also ran the project really well. I mean, I don't know if this comes from like any of the ways that they organize internally or just, you know, they just kind of hit on a a nice open source way to do this, which was like, you know, there's these special interest groups that look after every part of Kubernetes and they, you know, they're driven by design documents and they have sign offs and they have community meetings. And like it's a very well run thing, even if a lot of those people in the beginning were Googlers or we were taking off concepts that were kind of tried and vetted at Google. But then now it's kind of taken off into its own thing using that same process. And so, you know, other ecosystems were very top down driven by like either a single commercial organization. I don't know know as much about the history of like Cloud Foundry. And I think they tried to kind of do some of this as well. I don't know much about why, if that, if we consider that failed or not. Yeah, I mean, in the Cloud Foundry case, you know, I don't know that that story much either, but what Kubernetes did right, one thing they did right, at least, was that the whole donation to the CNCF thing, which didn't entirely subtract Google from having influence over the project, but at least was a nice you know, a signal. It sent a signal to the community, like, this thing is fully donated. And, you know, for people who don't know much about open source, like what open source means, like there's a big difference between TensorFlow, which is open source, but as far as I know, that repository is maintained and owned by Google versus Kubernetes, which Google donated to the Linux Foundation. It has this like democratized element to it. So, you know, when you, ha- when you have this really big tent, like Linux Foundation oversight, it goes a long way to building trust in the community as opposed to like the Cloud Foundry model where I think it's more, it still is more in the purview of Pivotal, which has its pros and cons. What lessons did the container orchestration wars teach you about technology adoption? So I used to play in the OpenStack realm as well at Rackspace. Oh, wow. And so that's I think, another That's another historical analog. Yeah. So I was at Rackspace prior to the birth of OpenStack and saw that kind of get birthed there. Rackspace is one of the original two with NASA and releasing that open source code. And what I look at when you look at the adoption and the lifecycle of an OpenStack kind of the community and ecosystem versus Kubernetes and containers, it was the right abstraction level for the end users, which was the software engineers that are actually, you know, building all the web scale services that we just talked about. 
And so, um, you know, if you look at like a, getting a raw VM or getting a load balancer is great in the OpenStack world, but it's not the right level of abstraction for what you're trying to do. That doesn't help you ship your predictive type ahead search that you need to put into your mobile app, or it doesn't help you predict transaction volumes or something like that. It's just a means to an end. And Kubernetes actually gives you those primitives. Oh, I, like I need to scale out this web service really, really quickly. And, you know, you're not dealing with like, booting machines and wiring things up. You've got service discovery at your disposal. If you need to rotate a secret, for example, there's no like tooling for doing that in OpenStack or with a VM. You're inventing all that yourself versus now you're a little bit closer down to your application where you have tools for doing secret management, for example. And so it makes developers more productive, but also has a bunch of great benefits for your infrastructure teams. Whereas OpenStack or anything that is is not going to get all the way down to that core end user is not going to be as successful. Does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. So how would you calcify that into a more abstract lesson? More abstractly, I guess it's all about delivering value to the folks that not are like, I'll I'll use the decision makers in air quotes because it's not the folks with the dollars, but the folks that are making technology decisions, is it making their lives easier? And so why didn't OpenStack do that? Because I don't think it was the right set of tools for the software engineers and the teams that were running infrastructure on those VMs. They still had to build all this tooling. It, um, you know, it got them like one step down the road, but they needed to be four steps down the road kind of thing. So who was OpenStack for? Honestly, I think it was for folks trying to compete with Amazon and building large-scale infrastructure, but like people that were building clouds. So if you were one of these very large enterprises that was going to have a fleet of a bunch of bare metal servers that you were going to turn into your private cloud, OpenStack was kind of for you, but it wasn't for your software engineers at the end of the day. I see. So so what would happen is like a central IT person would say, this solves our problems. And then they would say, okay, software engineers, go implement my OpenStack strategy. And the software engineers would do it but not fall in love with it to the same extent that people fall in love with Kubernetes. Yeah, it would be something that they would be kind of mandated or forced to use. And, you know, it's like it's better than opening like a JIRA ticket to get a VM. It's better to hit an API. So like you're one step closer. But, you know, they don't give you all those primitives for like, okay, now I've got to like deploy some software on here. How do I build that software? How do I package it into an artifact that ends up on this VM? And then, you know, how do I do X, Y, or Z about the life cycle of that? It's like, well, you can make another VM via this API. And you're like, well, that's not what I need. Right, right, right. And unfortunately, the four steps ahead solution was AWS at the time, which wasn't open source. And then we had to just continue waiting to really get the open source version of the leverage that you get out of AWS. Yeah, great point of that is like, you know, hey, I need a database. Right. It's like, oh, sweet, here's a VM. You can install a database on that. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's like not what I need, you know? So that's, yeah, gets you one step forward versus like Amazon's like, oh, here's a HA fully secured, like production ready uh, MySQL. Is that what you want? And you're like, right. yes, perfect. Here's a host name and a password. Yes. Okay. And the I need a database request is going to be a great, that's a great preface for what we're going to talk about with operators a little bit later. But getting a little bit more into how you think about building products for engineers. You studied industrial design in college, and much of your work has been around the design of technical products, products for software engineers. Give me the one to two minute condensed masterclass of designing products for software engineers. 
Sure. So what I learned in my industrial design background is really like, uh, you know, this idea of design thinking. It's a way of solving problems and it's a pretty, it's methodical, but it doesn't have to be like, you know, something that you have to enumerate every single step and do it perfectly every time. But it's all about doing research and understanding the problems of the different classes of users that you're trying to meet the needs of. And then fitting a void of, you know, in that problem space and then kind of growing out from there. So if you're, you know, going to produce a new electronic component or whatever, you know, like something like the iPod fit this uh, niche that um, people had this void in their lives. And then you can design around that. And, you know, the actual appearance of it is great and the functionality of it is great. But nowadays everything has like a service component to it. So, you know, when you're designing Spotify, it's not just like oh, how does the player look? Oh, they've got this like dark UI. That's cool. But it's actually like, oh, how do these like magical discover playlists work? That's like a kind of a service component to it. There's like this, the experience is constantly changing. And so it's that idea that you have like this holistic experience when you're designing something, whether it's a web interface, an iPhone, a CLI, an API, all these things matter because they, they grow over time. What's the most common anti-pattern you see among products designed for software engineers? I would say either breaking API contracts or revving your version such that like, oh, semantically we we increased the version so we didn't like break our contract, but like introducing a lot of toil for folks where they have to like mess with your product and, you know, basically what you're asking for is to insert yourself into somebody's like development loop and their their product uh, shipping. And so you want your tool to provide a ton of value for them, but if you're also adding a ton of friction oh, we changed this, we renamed this, we changed our pricing scheme, um, oh, you now authenticate like this, or like, oh, we deprecated that, we have this new thing, it works a little bit differently, but it's 80% there. Like, anything that you do those types of things, because it's easier for you as the engineer producing that tool, you're introducing all that friction to your customer. And I see that happen, you know, time and time again, and actually going back to the OpenStack thing, this is where Google does a great job in Kubernetes, and we didn't in OpenStack, is all those projects were kind of versioned differently. They had different backwards and forwards compatibility guarantees. They upgraded either didn't at all or provided a crappy migration script or like some of them would have a world-class migration, but it was all different, so you couldn't depend on it. And so that's something that Kubernetes does really well in terms of how you upgrade it. But, you know, every CLI out there as well, if you've ever had something that broke or dropped flag silently is a really big problem. The buying of software has changed. It's gone from the days of a CSO or a CIO buying a big solution and, you know, ordaining that the software engineers implement it. I mean, that still takes place in in many cases, but that there's clearly a shift towards a bottoms-up uh, mentality where the software engineers are the ones who are selecting the technologies and there's a, a gradual uptake within a company and then eventually the central IT says okay well all of our developers are buying into this pretty easy to just go negotiate a contract because developers are going to use it how has that changed the design of software engineering tools I think it's raised the uh, user experience bar is kind of the the most overarching thing that you'll discover and from like the the docs about your product, if even if it's API-driven, you know, like uh, the Stripe experience is always heralded as being really, really great. And so you now need to live up to that for the next thing. If you're going to introduce like some video transcoding service, for example, you know, it's got to have, it's got to be clear what it gets me, how do I implement it, what is it going to look like in the future, why am I betting on this, and then can I actually plug it into my my thing, whatever workflow that I'm implementing. And so I think that bar is now really, really, really high, which is good. 
but you know everybody's lives get easier but that just means that you know these crappier products aren't going to make it just because they don't live up what are the problems in usability that kubernetes users still have today i think it's a number of things that it's a pretty broad platform at this point and so understanding all of the knobs that you have to tweak to tune your applications or tune their eviction behavior or um, kind of anything that's about the, the life cycle of your application. There's just, you know, and functionality is constantly being added. So understanding all that and just keeping, keeping in mind what's coming, what's stable, what's in the beta, that type of thing. And then like shipping containerizing your software is still a hurdle for a lot of folks. Um, you know, if you're on more of the bleeding edge, that seems like, oh, we solved that three years ago. But folks are still getting into how do I adapt my software for this new world? You know, folks are very used to just, you know, manually configuring a single server and leaving it running forever. And that just doesn't fly in this kind of system. So it's like breaking those cultural norms, um, I would say, is still a big challenge. We've done a couple shows on, quote unquote, stateful Kubernetes applications. And I think a stateful application, you can generally define as something you attach storage to, like container-attached storage, maybe a, a persistent queue like a Kafka or a Redis. Tell me if you agree with me or not on the definition of a stateful application, and give me your perspective on how hard is it to run stateful applications today? Yeah, I think you started to describe kind of, I'll just invent a term here, like lower-level stateful applications, which is like basically you're taking a uh, either a, a pod in, in Kubeland or a, like a VM somewhere else, and just like attaching a block storage device to it, and then it's like, oh my, this is your, this is really good for like a simple Postgres database or something, and you're like, oh, store your data there, and that actually ends up on some remote block storage somewhere. But then there, I think there's higher level stateful applications, which are what you started to describe as the messaging queues. These are like replicated databases, things that might not depend on like disk per se. But storing things in RAM and doing uh, synchronization in some other mechanism at the app layer, both right. of those because Ka- Kafka still... does keep stuff in RAM, doesn't it? Like you ask, okay. And so things like uh, etcd, for example, primarily store things in RAM. It gets flushed to disk on the right, so you have that durability. But mostly, what you're doing is holding it in memory, just like things like Prometheus or you know, holding that stuff in memory as well. Does etcd does it? It maintains like three different copies in RAM for each piece of data, and then like when a write, a write is only completed if it's on three different copies in the RAM? So it's a write-ahead log, and so three, five, seven, nine are the typical uh, numbers that you'd run those in. And so it basically keeps all the data in RAM, but it flushes it to disk, and that only when it flushes itself to disk and comes back saying that that disk uh, write actually happened, is it then sent to all the other followers in the cluster saying, hey, this was committed. This is so that if the process goes down, you're not losing your quorum. Or, you know, when it comes back up, you can kind of, the write-ahead log needs to stay intact. And so this is one of the interesting things about etcd is, especially in this interacts with everybody because everyone's running kube, is etcd is only as fast as the slowest core members. And so if you have, if you think about your path to, you have a network request going over into the etcd cluster over a network. It needs to be ingested by etcd, written to disk. That disk might actually be a remote block storage device. That write needs to come back and then be transmitted to all the other followers once again over like that cloud network for it to be written successfully. Yeah. And typically, if you're all in a cloud, this happens very quickly and it's all good, you know, one or two milliseconds, you know, depending, 10 milliseconds. 
But we see a lot of uh, customers, especially of OpenShift, that want to run what we call stretch clusters, which is having nodes in like two different uh, complete like zone, not even just availability zones, but data centers, and like might maybe like in New Zealand and Australia, for example. And so now, if you've got your etcds, if your quorum is on one side of that, it's really fast. But if one of those nodes fails and your quorum now stretches, etcd becomes really really slow because it's only as fast as the slowest quorum member, or as the fastest on the the slow side of the quorum. So that's an interesting thing where uh, these types of databases have all this logic at the application layer that are impacted when it's not just like, oh, attach a block storage device to it and call it done. So there's a lot that can go wrong. With something like an etcd, there is a lot that can go wrong. If you were trying to run etcd on Kubernetes, there's there's stuff that can go wrong. But people people Um, do run etcd on Kubernetes, right? Like, which... Is kind of weird to think about, right? Because you need a Kubernetes, you need etcd to run Kubernetes in the first place. But in addition to that, people will run other instances of etcd on Kubernetes. Yeah, and so I've heard that some of the cloud providers actually have whole kube clusters that only run control planes for other Kubernetes clusters. So you might have like you know five thousand etcd databases on one cluster, and you know five thousand schedulers and things like that, um, which is interesting. Is there some kind of economy of scale to like co-locating all of your etcd clusters as a cloud provider no because it actually is probably tough on your disk performance because you know these things are are flushing writes to disk all the time but it's they need to manage these applications just like anything else so they need apis for life cycling them they need them to get rescheduled when the node fails and all that stuff just like you do so i think that's why they do it it's tooling that they're very familiar with okay so Let's ease our way towards the operator conversation. Let's say I have a Kubernetes cluster. I want to run a distributed systems tool on it. Maybe I want to run Kafka on it. Maybe I want to run an etcd on it. What primitives does Kubernetes give to me that might make it easier for me to run something like a Kafka? Yes, you've got all the objects that are in Kube at your disposal. If you think of that as like your toolbox, you've got stateful sets for um, doing some of the very simple stateful workloads like we talked about. Stateful sets basically give you a run this pod, and then wherever that pod goes, attach the storage to it. And if the pod moves from node to node, move the storage from node to node with it. And so that gives you a, a durable place to write some data, for example. You've got uh, load balancing primitives for doing, you know, service discovery and load balancing across all those uh, nodes in your cluster. You've got some auto-scaling primitives. You've got secret rotation and config rotation and management. So all these things, you can start to construct these pretty complex distributed systems. You just need something to glue it all together, basically. What is a Kubernetes operator? Kubernetes operator is taking the expertise of running like a Kafka, all the the expertise that it takes that, you know, the knowledge of the community that builds Kafka to install it, fail it over, to scale it up, scale it down, is building that into a piece of software that uses that toolkit I just described, all the Kubernetes primitives, to make that happen specifically on Kubernetes. So to run Kafka, you might need to, you know, start these different tiers of services and then have them discover each other, elect a leader, start replicating some data. Maybe you want to back up some data somewhere else. All those things can use that Kubernetes toolkit to do. And then you need something to orchestrate that. And that is the operator. What problems does the operator pattern solve? Like I I see it as almost like a two-sided thing. Like it solves a problem for the vendor the application vendor like if i if i am selling kafka to somebody like if i'm confluent and i'm selling you kafka 
you're going to need to install it or we're going to need to help you install it. It also helps the application developer who is installing one of these things. So so whether whether we're talking about the person who is packaging up an application to help people like to help it get distributed or the people who are actually installing one of these higher level pieces like Kafka, it's very helpful. That's 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 the problems it solves. Okay, so so actually let's let's talk in a little bit more detail about like what it takes to create one of these things. So like let's say I'm Confluent I want to offer a Kafka distribution. What goes into specifying that or building that operator? So one of the key things about distributed systems in general is you need to get your state from a central source, and this is where Kubernetes builds on etcd. And what operators do is use the Kubernetes API for their source of central state. So you basically, just like all the Kubernetes components work under the hood, you have this idea of a desired state and the actual state. And so the either human operator inputs you know, some desired state for, this is a production Kafka, so scale it out this way and keep it HA or whatever. And then the operator is actually going to go make that happen. What it's going to do is translate your very high-level desires into a bunch of Kubernetes objects and desired state that's going to submit to the Kubernetes API. And then the Kubernetes API is going to make it happen. So on initial install, you know, nothing is going to exist. And so it's like, oh, I need to go make these stateful sets, these deployments, make these secrets, wired up to these pods, et cetera. And what you're doing there is programming that reconciliation loop between actual and desired state. So if you see that like a one of your pods went away because like the node failed, for example, your operator says, hey, desired state doesn't match the actual state. What do we need to do here? Oh, I need to go make a new pod somewhere else. Let me go schedule a new pod out. But where this starts to get above Kubernetes primitives is like a deployment will do that for you or a stateful set will do that for you. But what if you need to rebalance data during that? Oh, our shards are uneven now. Let me go re-even those out. That's the type of logic that you can put into the operator. So when I think about like why people like Kubernetes, a lot of it has to do with the like declarative format. Like I can declare how many nodes I want at all times and declare a bunch of other things. When you're describing setting up a Kafka cluster and and all the things that I want to set up around a Kafka cluster using the operator pattern, can I st- still use declarative syntax or do I need to include some imperative logic? Nope. It's still all declarative, just like these are Kubernetes objects at the end of the day. And what we do is build on the extension mechanism in Kubernetes, which is the custom resource definition, CRD. And so you're still interacting with the same Kube API with KubeCuddle or the, you know any other tooling that you like. And you're just submitting objects that are now, instead of a deployment or a stateful set, the object type is a Kafka cluster or a Kafka topic. And so it's still very declarative. That is, you're inputting the desired state, and then you know the operator is then comparing that input with the current state of the cluster. Okay. So could we go a little bit deeper? I don't know you're probably not a Kafka like total expert, but like a little bit deeper into what like let's say you know I would need to to set up in order to build an operator for Kafka, or maybe if there's something you're more familiar with like Redis or Postgres, just I want to under, better understand what I need to do to configure this kind of thing. 
Yeah. Maybe let's step back for a second and think about like if you picture this operator as like your best employee, like your best SRE you've ever seen, like your SRE, like your hero, your ops hero. And just picture that person when you're installing one of these pieces of software. We'll get back to building in a second. When you're installing it, having somebody over your shoulder, you know, you're in a config file and you're setting some parameters and it's like, oh, no, 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 that one and that one conflict with each other. You can't do that. And you're like, oh, thanks, ops person. You're great. And then when you're scaling something out, it's like, hey, hey, remember to do that thing before you do that. It's like having this this hero that's always watching, protecting you from yourself. It's because if you're not an expert at this piece of software, for example, you just can't know all the primitives and iterations about, you know, do this before that and all these caveats. So the operator has that logic built in from the experts of that community. So if you're a Kafka committer or a, you know, person that works on Cassandra or somebody in the TensorFlow community, those types of things. So those communities then build that operator. They need to express all of those like rules, if you will, whatever would be in like a wiki page or a run book or something like that into their operator. So if you think about like all the steps that need to happen to like either elect a new master of like a Postgres cluster or set up that replication in the first place, you know, do your like or your MySQL Galera, any of that, it's that type of stuff that you need to bake into the operator. So you need to think through given nothing to something, how do I install this and set it up correctly? And then what are the really important parameters I need to be checking constantly to make sure that they don't regress? either through a system failure or like a human is trying to come in and like mess with something that they shouldn't, that the operator can go back and correct that behavior. And so that's what I mentioned, like they're looking over your shoulder. They're always watching for, you know, the correct configuration values and things like that. There's a tool within the Kubernetes ecosystem called a Helm chart, which is for doing, I believe, like installation packets, kind of package manager for Kubernetes or? Yeah, it is basically like a templating mechanism that you basically process these templates with a set of input and then out uh, pops a bunch of Kubernetes manifests that are then submitted onto the cluster. And an operator can do all of that behavior and more. The problem that I see in Helm is that there's not something there's not this desired state loop that's going on. And so you're, it's kind of like a one and done submission. So there's a human in the loop, or if you trigger that via like Jenkins or something like that. But once that's done, there's nothing looking after those objects. Whereas an operator is constantly running. It's a long running process. And so, for example, you can build an operator out of a Helm chart, but we actually have this process that's constantly running, looking for, is this in the correct state? Is this in the correct state? And, and you know, making changes accordingly. And then you can get, of course, more advanced from this Helm chart into very advanced things like the Kafka's and the Postgres's. So what's the runtime model for operators? Like, you know, you're talking about the oper- your, you know, your system is going to get monitored, right? Like your Kafka cluster that you have an operator for is getting monitored somehow. So the operator system that is built on top of Kubernetes ha- is able to run There's some reconciliation loop and it also has insight into what's going on in the Kafka cluster so they can fix things. Tell me the runtime model for the operator system. Yeah, so you have one operator that's running on the cluster, and you know these can either watch a specific namespace or the entire cluster for all these Kafka objects and discover them. You know th- that are the clusters, and then that is watching the Kube API for all of the objects that that operator has started up and is managing. And so that's one way you can just use your to- Kubernetes toolkit and just Kubernetes APIs and get very far down the road. What you can do is we have this comp, uh, concept of like a maturity model for operators. And when you get further into the maturity uh, scale, you can actually start instrumenting your Kafka pods and knowing exactly the state of that application itself. 
So you might know the number of topics and their uh, the depth of the messages in them, and you might auto- start auto-tuning the cluster based on that. Or you might use Prometheus to monitor some of the resource utilization and other you know requests per second of some of these topics, and then acting on that data. And so that's where these start to get really, really powerful. And that's all kind of very much dynamic uh, runtime stuff. It's just reacting to what the cluster is doing, whether those are, you know, a human tweaking values and scaling it up, or just more traffic coming in and changing it accordingly. The scale up example, can we go a little bit deeper into that? So, So let's say, you know, at a high level, there are more users using my website, right? They're logging in, they're using more sessions, so I need to scale up my application. That includes increasing my application servers and maybe scaling up the database. If I'm, you know, if I've got a Kafka cluster that's monitoring my user events and stuff, and the user write traffic increases rapidly, my Kafka cluster is going to need to scale up. How is the operator recognizing that my my Kafka cluster needs to scale up, and then what's happening? Yeah, so working back from like, you know, there's going to be a a trigger event of some sort and whether that is like either request per second coming in or if you've instrumented your application and it's got a very specific, you know, memory mapping of like, hey, I've tripped over this threshold, something needs to happen. So say you've got like a sharded session store and, you know, so you say, oh, we got uh, more sessions coming in than we we had a bunch of new users create accounts. So we need to now reshard this thing. Okay, like we recalculate all the shards and we know that, oh, okay, we need to boot a new shard and we're going to move a bunch of data over. So you start, you create that pod. Oh, we need this like rate limiting proxy in front of it. So I know to put one of those in two. Okay, now let's register that with service discovery so that we can start, you know, getting traffic into our shard, our new shard here. And then health checks come up and, okay, our new shard's online. Let's start, um, you know, doing the actual data movement to move the, the data over from the existing sessions. And then... Oh, look, now we've calculated that when we do a backup of this in an hour, we're actually going to, you know, go over the size of our persistent volume where we've been storing our backups. Okay, so let's now resize that volume so that we're going to be able to fit that in. Um, So it's like a kind of a cascading set of things that could happen when one of these events, like these thresholds cross, and you need to like start doing a bunch of stuff. Now, the operator can do all this manually, or I mean, automatically, so you're not doing this manually. So you would kind of never know that this even happened if, if you have the world's best operator, for example. And these are things like uh, the system I kind of described is roughly similar to a project from Google called Vitesse, which is like highly scalable MySQL. And so they basically do have a series of proxies that direct you to shards of MySQL and have ways for scaling it out. And they have an operator that um, they built that does this. And so, uh, you know, these are become pretty complex really quickly, but, you know, this thing runs MySQL at the scale of YouTube. So it's it's pretty high scale. Yeah, yeah, we did a few shows about that. So that, that model that Vitesse takes to MySQL, that's broadly applicable to stateful applications or stateful things, stateful modules like Kafka. Yeah, stateful or, distributed systems, yeah. Wow, interesting. Okay, so listeners to this show can listen back to the Vitesse episode. You know, I probably cut to the chase a little bit too quickly here because I think we've we skipped over the real value of the operator pattern to the average developer, which I, from my point of view is it gets us closer to ironically, a world where we don't need to think about Kubernetes at all, right? We should, like, I was able to build an application eight years ago, and I wasn't thinking about Kubernetes. I want to go back to that world, right? I want my database. I want my business logic in my Node.js application. I don't want to think about 
container orchestration. Mm-hmm. Explain why the operator pattern gets us closer to that world. So it's all about self-service at the end of the day. It's about that cloud-like experience that folks love, You know, hence why AWS and other things have taken off ginormously. And it's that... I want to start a new prototype, and you know maybe we used a, a relational database, but we want to swap in like a, a NoSQL for a prototype. Let me just like see how this is going to work. It's the idea that you can just go quickly get a database without being an expert in, let's say, Couchbase, and be off to running prototyping it and be done with it in like you know an hour or two or a day or a week or whatever, and then come back and say, hey, we're ready to you know kind of do this thing. It makes sense. That frictionless experience is what we're going after, not just oh, let me go find this blog post about how to do Couchbase. Okay, I understand that. Now I'm going to go dig into the configuration files. Okay, that's great. Now let me go set up the load balancing and write all these Kubernetes YAML objects and blah, 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 blah. So the operator can do all that complexity for you. So you just say, hey, I want an HA Couchbase cluster. Put it in my namespace. And so it eats against my cluster quota and let's go to town. So the operator can do that if you, you know, your admin says, hey, everybody on this cluster can have Couchbase clusters. And then you can do it in a self-service manner just by using the Kubernetes API. You know, create a new object that is Couchbase cluster, and then boom, you get it. So it's increasing, like, you know, time to market or time to prototype in this example versus having to... Or decreasing, excuse me. So you don't want to have to fight the system to get, you know, the resources that you need to do your job. What's my experience for deploying an operator? Like if I if I want to deploy a database or deploy a Kafka cluster or whatever. Yeah, so if the operator is already installed, which is typically more of an admin task, if you're just an end user uh, engineer, then you and like an OpenShift, for example, we have great UI for browsing the capabilities that an admin has provided to you. So this might be Kafka clusters, Mongo clusters, Couchbase, Postgres. And so you can go in and find all of those. And then, you know, it's just one kube YAML object that is this high level config that you pass in. And then the operator knows to, if you don't set a value, to default it to something smart and things like that. So you just say like, oh, for a Couchbase, give me a cluster size three. And then here's the secret for like the default account that I want to use stored as a Kubernetes secret. Then you're off and running. Of course, you can tune all these like bucket settings and stuff like that if you want to later on. Um, so that's the power of the operator is you don't need to be an expert in Couchbase. You d- obviously, you need to know how to use it and connect it to your application, but you don't need to care about how those components discover each other when they're booted or which ones need to be restarted first when a software upgrade happens, that type of thing. And Red Hat created this thing called Operator Hub, right? Yes. Which is like a place where people can browse these operator YAML files, right? So who are writing those operators? Is it like Confluent goes and writes a Kafka operator or Postgres goes and writes a Postgres operator, Couchbase goes and writes a, post, writes a Couchbase operator? Where are those operators coming from? So it's a mix. And what we're going for with the operator concept and operator hub IO is to go to the experts. So, you know, we want to get a Mongo operator from MongoDB Inc., because they are the experts. But it doesn't have to be a commercial company. We want to go to the TensorFlow community for a TensorFlow operator because they're the experts. So all that operational expertise that it takes to run and install and scale and fail over those pieces of software, we just want to go to the experts. So in the software engineering realm, this typically ends up being backed by a commercial company. So Red Hat also wants to have certified operators so that our enterprise customers can have somebody to turn to when they want support on your Redis cluster, for example. But that doesn't mean that there's not an open source alternative as well. So we kind of have a path for for all kinds of communities. And then, you know, we have a bunch of products and open source that we do as well at Red Hat internally um, that are operators. What's been the adoption for operators at this point? 
It's been really powerful. If, if you were at KubeCon last week or you've been at, at previous KubeCons, folks are talking about it. And it's kind of, we've reached this phase in the adoption of Kubernetes where we've got our stateless apps down. We've got our stateful applications that are, you know, pretty simplistic, which is like stateful sets like we talked about earlier. But now we're into this realm of like running pretty complex things on top of it. So, you know, your banks and e-commerce shops and stuff now are pretty complicated. You've got, you know, these doing rate limiting and quality control things. You've got machine learning on uh, and audit logs. You've got your scale up web tier. You've got, you know, maybe a NoSQL like caching uh, tier like uh, Redis. And then you've got your super persistent like Postgres or, you know, Oracle databases, uh, maybe if you hate yourself. So all these things are really complex and they've got teams running each one of them. And so nobody can know the operational complexity of running all of that, especially when you need to run it in, you know, 10 different geos and then eight different staging environments. You've got a user acceptance environment and you know you need to stand up all these different stacks and then you're you know you're slacking people, "Hey, what's the latest version of your thing and where do I get your bash script to install it or something?" you know. <laughs> it's kind of nuts where you can just say, "Hey, here's our operator and here's where they're published. You can get a local copy of our front end stack, the latest copy, here's the stable one, here's the beta one, etc." And you can start to construct these really complex applications that might just be 10 operators at the end of the day, um, that type of thing. So that's great because it sounds like there is not, you know, sometimes in the tech industry you get inertia, right? You you get, look, I've been describing my, I've been standing up my Kafka cluster manually for a long time. I don't want to get involved with this operator thing. It's like disrupts my inertia. That's not happening as much. I mean, it's hard to say because there's a whole bunch of Kafka clusters out there, of sure, course. Yeah. The nice thing is that at the end of the day, you're still talking to Kafka. So you're like you're not changing you're changing your deployment paradigm, but not your like consumption paradigm. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully at the same time unlocking more self-service for your engineers. So you're freeing up their time from, you know, fighting getting this stuff deployed and then as well as day two operations. You know, now they don't need to be an expert digging through all this stuff at three AM when they've got some outage on the Kafka cluster because the operator, you know, can go in and knows how to tweak those settings to bring it back up to, you know, production ready, things like that. What are the shortcomings of operators today? Are there any bugs or usability issues? I think it's just wrapping your head around this new model of the world where you're sourcing your state from the Kubernetes cluster and, you know, you're interacting with these applications at a higher level, just like you would a cloud service versus like, you know, at the individual VM level that somebody might be used to, you know, oh, I just SSH into this thing and, you know, drop into like a SQL command prompt and start like screwing around with the database or, you know, tweaking some of its configuration. Uh, it's a you're entering from a higher level through the operator so that you're you know protecting yourself and preventing two people from making the same change at once and that type of thing. So it's a little bit different uh, model of working, but just like you can't screw around with like your RDS database at Amazon, you can't SSH into those machines and start poking around. You know, I think it's it's a new model of the world that people are coming around to pretty rapidly. So wait, I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood the last point. So like I set up Kafka with my operators. You're saying I should just never access those clusters directly, or well, it's it's not uh, it's giving a more rigor and making programmatic changes versus like one-off manual changes uh-huh. to components that might have ripple effects through the system that you're not even aware of. And so having a higher level piece of software that is looking out for those changes, basically, mm-hmm. it's not that you can't reconfigure things, for example. Any interesting 
operator case studies like you know we talked about Couchbase or Redis or 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 Kafka any anybody who's developed an operator that you've talked to at length about their experience crafting it and getting it deployed to operator hub and consumed by the public yeah we had a, a community event right before kubecon a week or two ago and we i had chaired an operator panel um, and folks were talking about building their operators and one of the questions i asked was what did you understand about your software by building this operator and you know the idea that you need to maybe you had some hard-coded configuration values that you wanted to make more tunable and so you kind of fixed that problem and brought it up to a higher level and one group shared they actually found that their leader election bug or their code had a bug in it uh, where it didn't work correctly in you know all different edge cases and because they started they were thinking through how do they implement that in the operator and kind of discovered this? And so I think that's kind of interesting. It's, it's forcing you to tease apart your application hierarchy and architecture a little bit through the process of this, which I thought was kind of interesting. So that's like a success story on the building side of it is, you know, finding some bugs. On the implementation side or, you know, running one of these operators, we like to point at one of our old CoreOS customers was, you know, wanted to run Prometheus. And that was kind of like their blessed tool for running uh, container-native monitoring because it just understood what was going on in their kube clusters really well. And this is an organization that kind of lets folks make their own technology decisions, and everybody started just coalescing on Prometheus. And so what they did is install the Prometheus operator on their clusters, and so each team can run their own Prometheus cluster and you know change how, many, how much RAM it's being used and how long it's going to keep its metrics and you know different replication settings and stuff like that. Um, but they all used it through the operator, and so they were running, like I think, 350, 380 different Prometheus operators, Prometheus clusters via operator for all their different environments and teams and this, that, the other development environments, which is kind of nuts. Show me somebody that can run like a database tier, you know, run 300, 400 of these things with basically no humans involved. These folks were, you know, providing very high level config and getting these production ready Prometheus clusters out with no ongoing maintenance tasks or understanding exactly how Prometheus works under the hood. They're not like you know, following the the Git commits and, you know, the GitHub activity and things like that. They're just getting these ready-made Prometheus clusters. If I have an operator and a bunch of users have deployed it and I want to update my software, let's say I'm updating the database, like I'm a database vendor, I've published a database, I've published an operator for my database, my users have deployed it, how do I push out an update to them? So this is where something like Operator Hub is really key. Is it gives you a conduit to publish new versions of your operator and either have it discovered on a kind of one-by-one one basis or actually push that down to the clusters themselves and say, hey, you've installed and subscribed to a stream of updates from MongoDB about the Mongo operator. And this Mongo operator has entered into this contract such that it knows how to do rolling updates of the application itself. And so uh, what that looks like is, you know, you Mongo itself builds in all the logic to go from version 1.1.1 to 1.1.2, for example, or maybe even a major version 1.2.0, and packages that into an operator, and you install that on the cluster, and the operator knows how to read the existing databases that you have and say, hey, I understand this new version of Mongo now, let me transition these databases. And if it needs to you know, install a new component and wire it up. It knows how to do that and uses the Kubernetes toolkit that it has to do that. Maybe it needs to shut down or deprecate a different component so it knows how to do that. Maybe deploy the new one before you deprecate the old one. All that logic can be in there. And then, you know, take a backup before or um, start replicating data or, you know, change these environment variables, whatever it is. The rich uh, part of the operator is you have this 
uh, place to do all that knowledge. So something like Helm doesn't know how to do that. It's just going to blindly create some Kubernetes manifest, but it doesn't really know how to introspect what's there, what do I know about specifically what it takes to upgrade Mongo, and then make that happen. You and I were both at KubeCon this month, May, early May uh, 2019, or mid-May, I guess. Give me your reflections on the ecosystem circa summer 2019. What was your mind changed about, uh, or what, what new insights did you have from the conference? I think we're seeing most vendors now have fully embraced Kubernetes. I think, I mean, I think people have been saying for a while that Kube is one kind of the orchestration wars, but you're seeing like almost every vendor, you know, Oracle's out there talking about how you can run their software in containers. And so that's when you know you've reached like, not the long tail maybe, but you're, you're, you know, towards heavy into over the curve of um, adopters. And so I think that's really great. And so folks are now seeing that you can run basically any software under the sun on Kubernetes. You know, containers at the end of the day are just Linux processes running on a Linux host. And now we've got Windows hosts. And so I think the ecosystem is so so broad now that if you're going to targeting kind of next generation infrastructure, your go-to-market is basically on Kubernetes. So I think it's cool to see that wave actually happening. And this is one of the things that we talk about with our operator partners is if you want to kind of embrace the entire Kubernetes ecosystem and, you know, have a great experience for your product. An operator is the best way to install, upgrade, manage, failover your piece of software, and then you can run on any Kubernetes provider out there, which is really, really powerful. Well, that's true, although in many deployments, people have some kind of lock-in to a particular cloud provider, like IAM privileges or... So, well, I guess if you... If you're only on the cluster, you right. know, you're not even interacting with IAM. Wow. Um, so this is the beauty of using Kubernetes as your toolkit. Right, right. Um, it's not to say that you can't integrate with kind of external services if you want, but if you are just using Kube internally, then you aren't locked into anything. And this is the beauty of an operator, is if you want to go to Confluent and purchase their product, you can use it on this cloud provider, you can use it on VMware, you can use it on bare metal. Right. Um, it works the exact same. They can give you like a proprietary enterprise distribution, right? Like yeah, if they want to have yeah. if they want to have closed source binary, that's pretty cool. So, but let's say let's say I want to deploy, I do want to deploy most of my resources in a cloud agnostic way, but maybe I want to use Amazon for SageMaker or whatever. Like, and I want to have my application and database located on AWS data centers so that there's low latency between SageMaker and my applications. Are there well-defined patterns for how to do those integrations, like integrations between this? Because what you're describing is the dream, right? The, the cloud agnostic deployment of resources. How would I interface between those resources and the cloud-specific resources? It kind of depends what it is, but if you think about like I'm mean, unlocking like a, a swath of these is just like a host name and a username and password away. So you can have headless services in Kubernetes that point out of the cluster somewhere, and you can have a secret that stores credential information. So then you can start talking to a, a huge swath of these, whether it is a database from Azure or a database from Amazon, for example, and your application knows nothing about it. You're using Kube primitives still. Uh, but also your applications can know how to, you know, very specifically go talk to those resources if that is something that you want to do. 
We've seen folks uh, have operators that go orchestrate third-party like DNS APIs or reconfigure like hardware load balancers and things like that. So I think there's like a ton of choices there for how you want to integrate. And one of the concepts that we are currently pushing forward in our kind of operator um, special interest group is the idea of service bindings, which start getting into what you're talking about. Um, if you're familiar with the open service broker API, there's this concept of you know, you've got a front end and a back end and they need to share a credential to talk to each other. That is called a binding. And so we want to bring that into the operator world where, you know, you can have two operators working together to accomplish a common task. And where you see this is like pick a, a, you know, some uh, random off the shelf piece of software that might just say, hey, I need a relational database to work. And it's like, you know, this is where you would go file a ticket with your DBAs and go get a Postgres cluster or something like that. Now it could be either go do that or, oh, I actually know how this Postgres operator works and use the operator to go fulfill that. So that's like, I think the new model that we'll get into is here's my piece of software. I require a Redis database and a Postgres database. You have these two operators installed already. Boom, I know how to go get databases. They're up and running in 10 milliseconds, that kind of thing. Does AWS take part in the operator SIG at all or who, who, who who's in there? Um, so this is, it's a, a Bunch of random folks from some of the partners we've talked about, like uh, Redis and Mongo and Couchbase, um, and some folks from IBM and a smattering of smaller companies. So Amazon is definitely active in the operator space, however, because they have a Amazon service operator. And what this does is really cool. This is talking about, you know, this is taking the interacting with external resources to the extreme. They model like an S3 bucket as a custom resource definition that their operator is managing and listening for. So when you make a new S3 object, it actually will go on the back end, go make a real S3 bucket and oh return stuff back about it. And it works with like a number of their services, I think like 10 or 20 That's like extending their Lambda-friendly, event-driven model to your Kubernetes. And right into Kube, which is really exciting. Wow. So even if you did want a cloud database, you know, you can go make an RDS object and it will go make that RDS database for you and then return information back about it. This is its name. This is how you address it, et cetera. So what this allows you to do is just work off a Kube API, but then integrate with the cloud where it makes sense. And so hopefully we'll see other cloud providers building this type of functionality in so that you are just using, you know, your your Kube RBAC, it's writing to the Kube audit log, and then, you know, you're getting cloud resources out at the other end. Coming back to your reflections on the technology industry, what do you think of Google managing to do this jujitsu of, inclu- of uh, introducing Kubernetes into the world, and then kind of seeing the the dynamics between AWS. Basically, now it's like AWS. I think of AWS as kind of like the uh, I, I don't know the Avengers ecosystem too well, but I think there's some like gigantic Titanic alien or something, and then there's kind of like the Avengers, and they're all like they're led by Captain America, and you've kind of got Google leading the Avengers, and it's all the other people, and just kind of marshalling versus AWS. But AWS is also like friendly with the ecosystem in certain ways, but it's it's certainly entertaining for me to watch. What have been your reflections on that competitive dynamics? I think what's great about the Kube community in general is it's showing us how we can all cooperate in open source right. and still put forward maybe other strategies that we have or other business goals that we have, but still cooperate together. Um, Even if you're AWS. Yeah. I mean, if you think about like Google, VMware, Microsoft, AWS, all, you know, have their hooks into their platforms for, you know, running 
Kubernetes on their infrastructure. So you make ELBs on Amazon, you get an Azure load balancer on Azure, et cetera. And uh, it's a really powerful way to, to plug in, but then also feel like you have the correct amount of tooling that is agnostic in that like a hybrid cloud scenario, where you actually do want to use a Kube API, not an Amazon API or an Azure API to get your applications Which deployed. Which is what we all want yeah. as engineers. So I think it's interesting seeing that happen. And, you know, all these, there's all these open source kind of like licensing uh, shenanigans that are happening right now with uh, different databases and things like that. You got a perspective on that? Just that Kubernetes is showing us how we all can work together and everybody can make money and kind of get their, their needs met without having to resort to being really hostile. If you, but that comes back to like the project is run really well. It has a neutral governance of the CNCF and, you know, why that's really important there. There is a place for these companies go to go to if they have a disagreement to start figuring it out with the community as part of that as well. It's not just these two companies kind of talking behind closed doors and things like that. But I think you, you need to go to market with somebody that is not going to, like, clobber your business at the end of the day if you're, you know, one of these database companies or one of these open source communities that are just going to see Amazon reap all the profits off of your hard work is a pretty oh, hard thing on. for them do to you stomach. Really, do you really feel that way, or is that you speaking as a Red Hat employee? I mean, I think you're seeing it. I think these, these companies are, if they don't become profitable, then they're going to go under. So it's like, what happens to that community that they built? Do they go start working for Amazon now? That wouldn't be that bad, I guess, but as long as Amazon continued that community. Sure, but their indignation, they're so indignant. They're so oh, this is not, you know, what Amazon is doing is not in the spirit of open source. I don't like that argument because we don't have morality of what open source is, right? Open source is just open source. You know, and then they're they're making these arguments that for for like with righteous indignation and it's just come on, you know? It, it, no, because when you read these blog posts of like, you know, the the open source companies and they're saying, you know, this is you know, the Amazon is eating up our business model. And it's like, well, okay, like that's a business problem. It's not a morality problem. Fair. I don't think it's necessarily, it's not a morality problem, but we need to figure out how to make the long-term health of our space in general, not just be dominated by one or two cloud players if, if they're reaping all the profits in the ecosystem. Is that the fault of the cloud players or the fault of the ISVs who raised money in a certain capital structure and, you know, placed all the wood behind the arrow of their, you know, single open source project? Yeah, I mean, that's fair. You need, it's it's like, a, you know, pivoting into either yeah, services or hosted absolutely. offerings or other things like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Another business, something. So that's what irritates me about it is like if I was a developer at one of those companies, I'm like, really management like you're going into the licensing business instead of the innovation business anyway a final question core os was acquired by red hat what have you learned about acquisitions so it's interesting we've and then actually, red hat was acquired by IBM, so, yeah, right. so we actually have a, a current acquisition that is ongoing and i think one interesting thing that i've seen at red hat about the ibm acquisition is just that everyone's eyes kind of opened up to what that experience is like. So we've uh, Red Hat's acquired a number of different companies, Ansible and Three Scale and a bunch of others. And so now they're now that they've been acquired, they understand what they did to those companies, where you just kind of like wake up one day and like your whole world has been flipped upside down. Typically, maybe not in like the a bad way, you know. But it's an exciting thing. But you know, now you're a part of this like larger organization, and you didn't really have a choice in that. And so all the the Red Hatters, I think, are now experiencing that and know what that's like, um, which is interesting. 
But I've been really happy with the integration of CoreOS into Red Hat and super proud of our team because all of our technology is basically forming uh, the basis of OpenShift 4 and a lot of the other strategy rolling out of some of the business units in Red Hat. So uh, Container Linux was our container-focused Linux distribution that we, you know, our namesake uh, used to be called CoreOS. And that, you know, now lives on in a new operating system from Red Hat, a new commercially supported one that's on the pedestal with, you know, RHEL and Fedora, which is pretty awesome. And then all of the technology that we worked on in Tectonic, which was our Kubernetes distribution, forms the basis of OpenShift 4. And so kind of all the, all the things we had about large-scale machine management and driving uh, management of those machines from the wow. Kubernetes cluster now forms OpenShift, which is wow. a ginormous business. So validating. Yeah. So I'm pretty proud of the team for all of that. And then a bunch of our open source work, you know, etcd. So wait, like a lot of the stuff from like the the lessons from Tectonic and all that stuff in CoreOS, you got to basically bring that to life at scale with OpenShift 4. Yeah, yeah. And this OpenShift is an extremely critical division. Absolutely. IBM's CEO, Jenny, was at Red Hat Summit and, you know, mentioned OpenShift a See, number by, of times. By the way, talking about an open source company that was able to find a second product and move into the innovation business or move further into the innovation business rather than the licensing business. Red Hat is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's like, you know, it's our expertise in Linux. And we always say that, like, you know, containers are Linux at the end of the day. And so we're just doing that in a clustered manner. So, you know, folks have been doing uh, very large scale rel deployments for a very long time. And this is bringing that like kind of networking and orchestration layer to it that we found that we needed with the container Linux and CoreOS machines, like we talked about in the very beginning, managing Linux at scale is really hard and you need to re-architect it a little bit. So that is the OS that we produce that we use inside of OpenShift for OpenShift 4. Nice work. It must be really validating. I mean, it's interesting... And we'll, we'll wrap up in a sec, but it's interesting, like, you know, the, the Kubernetes ecosystem, what's cool about it is, like, the, the collaboration and the co-opetition, and one side of that is acquisitions. Like, acquisition is a nice form of officiating some collaboration. It's like you see the collaboration in these special interest groups or user groups or forums or whatever, when the collaboration gets tight enough, you could just have these acquisitions and other forms of, of consolidation. I think that was the exciting thing and why Red Hat was the best place for CoreOS is that we already worked with all these engineers in the upstream community. So they contributed some to etcd and did a lot of scale testing on etcd because OpenShift, you know, are some of the largest clusters out there, sure. Kubernetes-wise. And so uh, we, you know, when we moved from uh, V2 to V3 of the etcd API and moved to a gRPC from an HTTP API, a lot of that was driven by scale, and that was input from Red Hat and Google on how do we get Kubernetes to the next level of, you know, having 10,000 nodes in a cluster. Etcd is going to start being the bottleneck there. And so we collaborated with them on a lot of that type of effort and, you know, plugging that in into successive versions of Kubernetes. And, you know, we worked with all those folks as well on the OCI spec and some of the work that we were doing around our earlier spec called AppC. Our CTO, Brandon Phillips, was the primary driver kind of behind the scenes of all that OCI work. You know, a lot of organizations took the, the credit at the end result level, but he was the one driving that spec, and it was a spec that was driven from CoreOS's announcement of our rocket container runtime that really kicked that whole thing off. Rob, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. It was fun. Wow.